Amen. Amen. I remember well going to visit Pastor O'Gorman and uh, Valerie uh, that first week or so. And uh, speaking with your pastor, he wasn't a happy man at all. He was uh, quite upset, I think. And uh, he uh, was giving me all those classic arguments. that I remember well, actually, he argued with me about uh, evolution. He didn't believe it any more than I did, but he argued about it, and, uh, you know, we discussed it a little bit and what have you. But anyway, we, we are so glad that uh, he and uh, he went, got to know the Lord, and what a blessing they have been uh, to this church these last 24 years. Can't believe we're that old. But anyway, it's a joy to be here at LifeGate, absolute joy. I was telling Pastor's wife, uh, I, had a meek, I was in a meeting two weeks ago up near Liverpool, and I've got another meeting in two weeks' time in Nuneaton. And uh, so that's me out of my own pulpit for two weeks uh, out of this month. Or, and then uh, I got the email from Pastor O'Gorman saying, will you come to LifeGate? It was a no-brainer. I said, yes, sign me up. So I've had to explain to my church why I'm away so often. And they've been very, very kind and appreciative uh, of, uh, of my, my desire and Hazel's desire to be here. We've just enjoyed our time. It's been lovely to be with Florence and see all the friends, Vincent and Verena, and Phil's on the front row, Mrs. Rowe, and on the front row. And uh, just just great. Mrs. Daly, Hugh, brilliant. Absolutely love seeing all these folks. Driving down the M50 last night on the, on the way from the airport, I was thinking about Brother Hugh. You know, uh, he used to drive this old uh, Toyota Hiace bus. And uh, we used to cram about 50 kids into it. I mean, not quite 50, but uh, that was evangelistically speaking. It was, it was more like, but sometimes we'd have close to 30 in it. It was like a nine-seater. You'd have kids with their faces crushed against the glass. And uh, it was dreadfully dangerous. But uh, anyway, we, uh, one time, I remember he was driving the bus. They just opened the M50, the first section, and it stopped here in Tala. I don't know where he was, where he was going or where he'd been, but he, he called me up and said there was a problem that they... <laughs> that the engine had exploded on the M50. <laughs> the problem was we put no oil in the engine. But anyway, <laughs> oh dear, the joys. All right, Ezra is where we are this morning. Ezra chapter 3. Isn't the Lord good? Amen. The Lord is good. He's gracious. What a God we serve. You know, what a joy to hear Vincent testifying today. And I remember well those days whenever we were working on the, uh, first, the, the left-hand side of the uh, house there. Meeting in Vincent Verena's house, remember that? Every week having to get all the furniture cleared out and the chairs out and turn the living room into a church. And uh, bless their hearts, what a, what a job. And then uh, Hazel and I lived in that old building. So we first of all had the church in their house and then we had our house in the church. So it's, uh, it was quite something. But uh, anyway, who would, have, who would have known what the Lord would do and what a joy it is to be in this lovely, lovely sanctuary and to see so many of you here this morning. Now, Pastor O'Gorman said, I'm allowed to preach till 12 o'clock, 12.15. It's five past 12. So, I guess that's it. He hasn't given me a time now. Anyway, we'll do our best. We'll not be too long, I hope. Ezra chapter 3 and uh, verse 8 says, now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
And Joshua, the son of Josedek, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Joshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you today for this wonderful opportunity to gather and not to praise ourselves or to praise this church as a local body of believers, but to praise and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus for the grace that he has shown over the years to this fellowship. Father, as we open now to thy word, we are reminded that this is the most important part of our meeting. Lord, we hear from you when we read these words of scripture that were and are God-breathed. Lord, help us to take them to heart. Help us to read them as they are in truth, the very words of God. And use them today in our lives to encourage us. And to bless us and to strengthen us and to motivate us, to exhort us to be what we ought to be and to go on for the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that if there is anyone here today who doesn't know the Savior, they would find something in these words that might point them to Christ and bring them to that place where they realize that he alone is worthy of our heart's trust and our life's devotion. Lord, we pray you'd use this time for your glory and honor. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like your life is a disappointment? Do you ever have a disappointment? Tell you what, I had a disappointment last month. Terrible disappointment. You see, if you know me, you know that one of my favorite foods in the whole wide world is Dunkin' Donuts. And a particular donut, the Boston cream. Who's had a Boston cream donut? See? Once gotten, never forgotten. I love Boston cream donuts, and I I just love them. I could eat them all day long. Anyway, lo and behold, for the last 12 years, unbeknownst to me, there is a Dunkin' Donuts outlet 15 minutes from my house. 15 minutes from my house. 
I found this out on the 4th of January. So traumatic was this experience that I remember the date. On the 4th of January, I had to pick up a Bible college student who's living at our house at Keel Services on the M6 motorway in Staffordshire. So I went down there to Keel Services and picked him up. And on the way home, he reveals to me that in Keel Services, there's a Dunkin' Donut shop. Well, I am absolutely dumbfounded. Not only is there a Dunkin' Donut shop, but even, not better, but as good as, there is a Harry Ramson's Fish and Chip shop. Now, my wife loves Harry Ramson fish and chips, and I love Dunkin' Donuts. And so I thought, my birthday was coming up, 22nd of January. I said, Hazel, we're going to go to Keel Services for my birthday. <laughs> I know it's not the most romantic location. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a truck stop on the M6. But they have a Harry Ramson's and a Dunkin' Donuts. And so for three weeks... I was licking my lips. (laughs) My birthday wheeled around. I got my wife in the car. We took these two Bible college students that we had with us. And we drove to Keel Services 15 minutes down the road. I was running in there like a little boy, really excited. Sure enough, there was the Dunkin' Donuts. Closed. (laughs) Disappointment. Harry Ramson's wasn't closed, so... Hazel got her fish and chips. But I did not get a Boston cream on that particular evening. Everybody knows, everybody knows sooner or later, disappointment is going to come our way. Uh, Everyone knows disappointment sooner or later. You know, friends break their word. Marriages end in divorce. Our children stray away. Colleagues betray us. The company pays us off. Doctors can't cure us. Our investments are disappearing. Our dreams are shattered. Uh, The best laid plans go astray. Christians disappoint us very often. We disappoint our own selves. We live in a world of disappointment. And we need to come to grips with this truth. You see, the reality is that there is every chance that tomorrow you may be unhappier than you are today. You know, the English author Joseph Addison said this, Our real blessings often appear to us in the shape of pains, losses and disappointments. History tells us that Alexander the Great wept because there were no more worlds to conquer as far as he understood. The sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, said this. He said, my life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations. Hugo Grotius, who uh, was the father of international law, said this at the end of his days. I have accomplished nothing worthwhile in my life. This is the epitaph written by the famed author Robert Louis Stevenson. He said this, Here lies one who meant well, who tried a little and failed 
much. The point is that disappointment comes to us all. It comes in the, uh, as, a, as a consequence, really, of misplaced expectations. You see, we all make certain assumptions about life and about life's journey. You know, often our assumptions are unstated. Sometimes we just harbor certain hopes in our hearts, and deep down we believe that if we do certain things, and if we do things in a right way, others will treat us in a certain way. We assume that we have earned some things out of life and if those expectations are not met we are met with disappointment put simply we are disappointed when things don't go our way wrong expectations lead to disappointment and disappointment often leads to despair The book of Ezra brings to our attention the account of the returning Jewish captives to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple there. For 70 years, this nation has been in Babylon. But now Babylon has been toppled. They've been replaced by the Persians. And the people are coming back to their homeland, back to the city of Jerusalem. And the scene there when they arrive is not a pretty one. Everything has changed. The countryside is in the hand of their enemies. And the city of Jerusalem, their capital, lies in ruins. The walls have been torn down. The buildings have been looted. And worst of all, the temple, the glorious temple built by Saul. Solomon some 500 years earlier is no more. It's gone. It's vanished. It's utterly destroyed. But Ezra tells us how they began the work of rebuilding that temple and how as they laid the foundation and rededicated the ground of the temple, the older people wept whilst the younger people rejoiced. Two whole generations of Jewish people had been born in Babylon. And those younger people, well, they had no memory of the glories of Solomon's temple. They had grown up in pagan Babylon. And so they cheered the beginning of this new enterprise, this new temple. But to the older people, well, they were looking at things a little bit different. They compared this new temple to the old and thought it looked like a builder's hut in comparison to the Taj Mahal. How pitifully small it appeared unto them. How relatively cheap, how totally inadequate when compared with the glories of that which once they had known. The older people were disappointed. They remembered how things used to be. And because they were living with misplaced expectations, living in the past with all its glory, they could not now deal with the realities as they actually were. You know, I want to say this to you this morning. If you've come to church this morning and you're disappointed about something in your life, if you're disappointed about something in your walk with God, if you're disappointed in something with your church or whatever it is, if you're going to overcome that kind of disappointment in your life, three things are necessary and we see them here in Ezra's book in chapter 3. Here's the first thing you need to do to overcome disappointment in your life. Number one, you need to rebuild the altar of God. Rebuild the altar of God. 
You know, the returning exiles began by rebuilding the altar so that they could offer sacrifices unto uh, God. That was their whole uh, purpose as they came. Notice what it says in verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together, notice, as one man to Jerusalem. All the people, as one man, assembled in Jerusalem, led by Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor of Judah, they began to rebuild the altar of God. And when it was finished, they began to offer the morning and the evening sacrifices, even as the law of God had ordained. And then they made the offerings for the Feast of the Tabernacles in verse 4 of this chapter. And they continued observing the sacrificial system in verses 5 and 6. Get this, they rebuilt built the altar before they began rebuilding the temple. Why? Because friends, worship of God must always come first in our lives. You see, out of the wreckage of their past disobedience as a nation, they first made sure that their hearts were right with God. They were saying, Lord, we want to get right with you. You know, it's not that important really that we have the edifice. It's not that important really that we build the walls and the doors and all of the construct that goes with the temple. The key thing right now is that we get the altar right, that we get to the place of sacrifice. You know, there are times in our lives, friends, when all we really need is a new beginning with God. You know, sometimes we need a new beginning because of our own sin. Sometimes we foul up, don't we? Sometimes we muck it up. It's our own mess. It's our own fault. It's our own feelings. It's our own flaws. Sometimes the circumstances of life become so burdensome that they defeat us and we need a fresh start. Sometimes we feel like our hope is gone forever. And in these moments, we must do as these Jews did of old. We must return to the altar of sacrifice. Where's our altar of sacrifice? Let me tell you where it is today. It's in a place called Calvary. We have to get back to the cross. We have to get back to the one that died for us and remember that no matter what, the Lord still loves us. His grace is still extended toward us. That he is still there for us. That he loves me and he loves you as much today as he did the day that he climbed Calvary's hill and put his back against an old wooden rugged cross and shed his blood for our sins. He loves you no less today than that day. I love what Micah the prophet said. He said, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You know, there's a wonderful graphic on the internet that I saw just recently that was doing a comparison of the depth of the sea 
with various topographical and man-made structures on the surface of the earth. And you know what's amazing how deep the sea is at its deepest point? I can't remember now exactly how far that goes down. But it goes down further than the Eiffel Tower, further than the Mount, Mount Everest. You know, I think from recollection, it was something like 27 miles deep at its deepest point. Something like that. Maybe even more than that. I can't remember. Maybe further than that, possibly. But it was amazing to me. You know what? I'm glad the Lord didn't cast my sins up in the surface somewhere where somebody could come along and scratch them up again. He buried them in the deepest part of the ocean where nobody can reach. He put them behind his back so as I don't have to see them anymore and he doesn't see them anymore. He put them as far as the east is from the west. You Aren't you glad he didn't say the north to the south? Said north to south, you can go to the north pole and find them. Or the south pole and find them. But if you go east, you can go east forever. If you go west, you can go west forever. There's no west pole. There is no east pole. In other words, the Bible says God put his sins as far apart as eternity itself. That's where we stand in Jesus today. And sometimes when we've messed up or, you know, life has just been a pain and we're discouraged and disappointed, we need to get back and rebuild that altar and see our Savior there dying for us. Then we need to relay the foundation. Having rebuilt the altar and thus reestablished their relationship with God, the people of Ezra's day began to rebuild and relay the foundation of the temple. Now that involved a massive cleanup operation. Remember, when they came back, they found a city that lay in ruins, had been reduced to rubble, where the temple had been. There was nothing but a pile of rocks, broken pieces of wood with weeds and bushes growing up through the debris. And when they first saw it, it looked nothing remotely like the temple they had remembered or been told of it had all been destroyed and it had all been uh, burned down it was lying in absolute ruins look in verse 7 it says then they give money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Jeppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus king of Persia now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month began Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jesedek and the remnant of their brethren and the priests and the Levites and all they that were come out of captivity unto Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord you know I want you to make two observations here about the attitude of these people first they committed themselves to following the Lord in the details of life. Notice in verses 2 and verses 4, the emphasis there that when they rebuild the altar, notice what it says, they did it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, they also held the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written. In other words, they surrendered their lives to the Word of God. They relayed the foundation. So it's time for you to start over. So life has thrown you a curveball. And so you've fallen and you've sinned. What are you going to do? Here's what you do. You go back to the basics. Back to the drawing board. You go back and read 
the instruction manual all over again. And you don't make the same mistakes all over again. That's what they did in Ezra chapter 3. They went back to the instruction manual and they read exactly what God expected of them. You know, I love what Peter says. In uh, 2 Peter, we were there in Sunday school this morning. But one of the things I like about Peter is his focus on those first things. And he says this in verse 10 of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, uh, Wherefore, uh, brethren, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent. I want you to listen for the recurring word. To put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, my body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And Peter is talking about the first things of the Christian life. And he's saying, you know what? I've been around a long time and I've been preaching a long time, but you know what? I'm going to keep putting you in remembrance of the first things. Of the beginning of the story of salvation. I'm going to keep reminding you of how you add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and the knowledge temperance, the temperance patience, the patience uh, godliness, the godliness brotherly kindness, the brotherly kindness charity to love. He says, I'm going to keep telling you, and telling you, and telling you, and telling you, over and over. You ever, you know, preachers feel like a broken record, don't we, brother? And you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. What really bugs preachers, pastors? What really bugs pastors? You get a visiting speaker in, and he preaches on something. And the pastor will be at the back door, you know, at the end of the service. And he'll overhear somebody say this to the visiting pastor. You know, that was a wonderful message. I've never heard that before. <laughs> and the pastor knows he's, heard, he's preached that like a dozen times already. And you're thinking, what is wrong with him? What is wrong with her? You know what? Sometimes we tune out the pastor because his voice is a familiar voice. And pastors do preach the same things over and over again. You know, Pastor Lerman, been here 24 years. That's 24 Christmases. I'm guessing he's preached at least 48 sermons on the Incarnation. At least that many. You've heard, if you've been here that whole time, you know, if you've been here since the start of the church, you've heard 70 sermons on the birth of Christ. At least that many. You say, oh, that's great. We don't have to hear it this year. No, we need to hear it over and over and over and over again. Come Easter, we need to hear about the cross over and over and over and over again. Come Resurrection Sunday, we need to hear about the empty tomb again and again and again. We need to be constantly reminded, relaying the foundation, going back to those first things, going back to those beginning days and remembering those baby steps that we took and realizing that those things were foundational to our growth. They relayed the foundation. And they did this despite all the enemies around them. As this story unfolds, as Ezra unfolds, 
The chapters that follow will tell you that their enemies did everything to prevent them, to discourage them, to harass them, to oppose them, to stop them altogether. And you put it all together and it looks like this. Despite the rubble, despite the opposition, despite all that had happened in the past, the people of God banded together and got to work to further the work of the house of the Lord. Friends, listen, if LifeGate Bible Baptist Church is going to see another 35 years, you know, I, I, don't know if I, I don't think I'll see 35 years, but if we see another 35 years, you know, I would hope that whoever is standing in this place is looking at an enlarged congregation. I would hope that your witness would be all the more powerful. I would hope that you would have reached far more people. I would have hoped that this church will have grown and grown and grown. Why? Because we relayed the foundation. We went back to the first things and we said to ourselves, listen, let's keep getting the message of the cross out there. Let's keep winning men and women to Christ. Let's keep pushing forward for Jesus. Doesn't matter what the enemies say. Doesn't matter what the opposition does. It doesn't matter what rubble there may seem to be in our way. Don't miss the point. You see, when you're disappointed and you don't know what to do, you take a lesson from these Jewish people. Do you know what they did? They did what they knew was right. That's what they did. You know, if you can't keep your big promises, here's my suggestion to you keep your small promises. If you can't follow the big plan, here's my suggestion to you, follow the small plan. If you can't see ten steps into the future, here's what I suggest you do. You take two steps into the future. As one person said, the smallest act of obedience is better than the greatest intention. If you can't obey God in some grand gesture, then obey Him in the small things of life. Do what you know that needs to be done and do it for the glory of God. Rebuild the altar. Relay the foundation. And then notice in verses 10 to 11, resolve to worship. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good. For his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the Lord was laid. Once the foundation was laid, And their leaders stopped. They gave thanks to God. Here was a unified public expression of praise. And when they sang, they sang, He is good. The Lord is good. We're not good. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. There's nothing in us that would commend us to God. They didn't even say, you know, once they laid that foundation, they didn't even say, look what we did with God's help. They didn't say that. They gave him all the glory and him all the credit. Friends, that's what we need to do in a day like this. Glorify the Lord. Give him the praise that is due his name. Here's the thing I want you to see. Even though laying the foundation of the temple was significant to these people, there was still a mountain of work left for them to do. 
And years would pass, years before this temple was finished. This was only the first step. But in that step, they stopped and gave thanks to the Lord. What a lesson there is for all of us in that. Don't wait until the victory is won to praise the Lord. Stop and praise Him before the battle has even begun. Praise Him in the midst of the conflict. Uh, praise Him when things seem to be going against you. You know, anybody, anybody can praise the Lord when the sun is shining. Anybody can praise the Lord. You know, our brother came and shared at how well his, his work was going and, and, and everything. And then, of course, the financial collapse came and he was in terrible trouble. Listen, anybody can praise God when they've got money in their pocket. But you praise God when you've got nothing. That's a different kettle of fish, isn't it? Anybody can praise God when your marriage is strong, when your kids are doing well, when you've just got a pay raise, when the future is bright. But it's something else to praise God when things are far from perfect. It's a great thing to be able to look at your life and say, you know what, this is maybe not what I wished for. It maybe isn't what I hoped for. It maybe wasn't what I aspired onto. But I look back over my life and I see that God has still been good to me nonetheless. And I think that's the thing that you should do today. You know, I would, I would imagine some of those folks who stood charter members of this church, you know, all those years ago, meeting in homes and, you know, and, and it was a, I tell you now, personally, that, here's what I say this all the time. The seven years that we spent here in Tala were the seven happiest years of our life. I don't, I don't lie about that. Seven happiest years. We had a wonderful time here. But you know what? People are here to tell you, we had no money. We barely bought that. I'm talking about the church. We, we, we had hardly 2D to rub together. We bought the first half of that building with hardly anything. But you know what? God was good, wasn't he? And he's still good. He's still good. Look at this. You know, we look back, you know, from that point in time, if we look forward, uh, you know, maybe we had aspirations and hopes and dreams and, and all, and maybe they came and maybe they didn't. Maybe they realized and maybe they weren't. But you know what? That's not important. The thing is that God was still good. Here in Ezra 3, we discover four great truths when faced with disappointments. Or three great truths, rather. Number one, we should yield our expectations and hopes to the Lord. Lay it all at His feet. What the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray? Thy will be done. Take the past with its happiness, with its sadness. Take the future with its unlimited possibilities and give it all past, present, and future to the Lord who spans all the generations. Say to him, Lord, you're the Alpha, you're the Omega, you're the first, you're the last, you're the beginning and the end, you're the God of yesterday and today and tomorrow, and I yield all of that to you with all of its expectations because I believe you're good. And then secondly, accept your present situation, be it good or bad, as from the Lord. Psalm 55, verse 22, David said, Cast thy burden upon the Lord. You know the Hebrew word for burden there? It means gift, that which he has given you. We don't, we don't often think of a burden as a gift, do we? But the Bible says that God sometimes gifts us with burdens. That's his sovereign choice. And so what you hear, you say is, I'm here by the sovereign choice of a loving God, and I know that my Lord 
makes no mistakes. None. And then thirdly, resolve to obey God right where you are. You know, disappointment threatens to embitter us. That's what I, I see over and over again. I see, see it in divorced people, bitter, bitter against their former spouse, unemployed people, sick people, bereaved people, others. You know, bitterness is a very destructive force. It robs us of joy. And while it does that, it makes us careless about the duties of life. Resolve in your heart that no matter what, no matter what life throws at you, you will live to the glory of God. Resolve in your heart to do what's right before him. Where you are, no excuses, no delays, no hoping for better days, no looking just for happier times or more favorable circumstances. If things aren't everything you hope they would be, we'll tell you what to do. Roll up your sleeves and get on with the work anyway. Who knows? Your willingness to do what needs to be done may change the things, the way things are. And even if the situation doesn't improve, you know what? You can hardly make it worse by doing what's right, can you? You know, one of my favorite stories was of a, a lady. I don't know if you saw this a few years, a couple of years ago. There was a Spanish church, a, a Roman Catholic church in Spain. They had this fresco. This fresco of, of, a, of a picture of the head of Jesus. Do you remember this? And uh, it was it, over the years it had become faded and the paint had chipped and, and it was in a little bit of a state, bit of disrepair. And uh, you know, it was a shrine. People would come and see it and look at it and do whatever they do to it. But this one lady in this Roman Catholic church decided that she would paint it, that she would fix it. Now, was she an artist? No. Had she any experience in repairing fine art? No. So, <laughs> so she took her paint-by-numbers book <laughs> and she decided that she was going to refurbish this image of Jesus. And I love what the BBC reporter said about it when it was finished. He said this, The once-dignified portrait of Christ now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. <laughs> it looked nothing like the original. She had destroyed this work of art. But you know what? More people came to see her restoration than had come to see the original fresco. So we mess up. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But the key thing is to determine to do what the Lord will have you to do. Ecclesiastes says this, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. You know, friends, disappointment is a tricky emotion. It's not wrong to remember the past. It's certainly not wrong to grieve over that which you've lost. If your loss was caused by your own foolish decisions, well then the scars from the consequences may keep us from making the same mistakes again. But eventually there comes a time when you have to stand up, brush yourself down, and just move on. Here's my question to you this morning. As you celebrate another church anniversary, here's the danger. 
The danger is that we allow our future to be defined by our past. That's a dangerous thing for a church, but it's a dangerous thing for you as an individual. And if you're living in disappointment and your whole life is under a cloud and you just can't move forward, here's what I'm going to say to you this morning. Here's my challenge. How long will you allow, how long will you choose to stay in your disappointment? Don't despise the present because it's not what you hoped it would be or because it's not what you wanted it to be. Cast your disappointments upon the Lord. Rebuild the altar. Relay the foundation. And resolve to worship God who is good all the time. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts. Pastor Gorman.